You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. Let's go ahead and make our way over to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan this morning. It's going to be in Luke chapter 10, starting in the 25th verse. This morning we're going to wrap up our series on the potent parables that Jesus shared while he was on the earth. If you're using one of those red pew Bibles near or around you, we are going to be on page 941. 941. If you're using an electronic device, you can go on the Version Bible app, find today's event, and all the scripture verses will be in there, and so much more as well. I can't tell if those are papers rustling or fruit snacks opening, so but we're going to get started here, and hopefully you can catch up. All right, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, verse 25 says, then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus took up the question and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be walking down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, verse 33 says, on his way, on his journey, came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, he said. Then Jesus told them, go and do the same. Lord, will you bow your heads as we pray? Dear Lord, I thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word to learn from one of your parables this morning. Dear Lord, I pray that you would open our minds and ears to hear your voice. Reveal to us the truth that's found in your word this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use me today and that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. Help me to handle your text rightly and faithfully proclaim the power of your gospel. I thank you for all that you're doing, Lord, and I thank you for the opportunity that we have here to study your word. It's in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, at the opening of our parable this morning, we see an expert of the law stand up and ask Jesus this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Luke tells us that this man stood up to test Jesus. Now, why anyone would want to test Jesus is beyond me. He definitely knows more than I do, so it would be impossible for me to test him at all. But apparently, this man was up for the challenge. That being said, the 
phrase here that we see, expert of the law, in verse 25, probably refers to a scribe, most likely Pharisee. This man was very educated in Jewish law. And the question that he is asking Jesus is a valid one. The question of eternal life is one that has plagued mankind throughout all of history. We all want to know what happens to us when we die. What must we do to receive eternal life and live forever? That's the same question that many of us have today. It's the very question that the Jews had during Jesus' lifetime. And just like many people alive today, the Jews believed that their future beyond this world was heavily tied to who they were and the good deeds that they accomplished while alive here on earth. Jesus, like every good teacher, is quick to discern the heart and understand the motive behind this man's questions. Let's look at their exchange again in the opening verses here of our parable. Luke 10, 25 says, Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. So here we see the Pharisee ask Jesus, how can I live forever? To which Jesus responds by asking him, what does the Bible say? The man then answers by summarizing Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, which say, love God and love your neighbor. Boom, Jesus says, you nailed it. You got it. Do this and you will live forever. Now, if you're a Christian and you've read your Bible, you know that Jesus is not outlining the steps to a work-based salvation here in Luke. We can't justify ourselves. How can we be justified by our works? How is that even possible? The simple answer is, it's not. However, this difficult truth does not prevent the man from trying. The Pharisee, wanting to justify himself, responds by asking Jesus, who is my neighbor? I can almost picture what the man is thinking to himself. Okay, love God. I got that. I can do that. That's a given. I understand that. But love my neighbor? What all does that entail? There are some people I can love, but does Jesus mean everyone? I can love certain people, sure, but there are some people I don't even know if God loves. Surely I don't have to love those guys, do I? Before moving on, this man wants to button down this important clarification. Who is my neighbor? Who are you talking about, Jesus? Who must I love? So, in an effort to answer the man's follow-up question, Jesus shares a potent parable that turns this man's preconceived notions on who his neighbor is on its head. Let's look at Jesus' potent parable together. Luke 10, further on down in verse 30, Jesus took up the question, and he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, beat him up, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, on his journey, came up to him 
And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to an innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. After sharing this parable with the expert of the law, Jesus asks him, which of these three guys most acted like this man's neighbor? Now, before we jump straight to the man's answer, I'd like to take a moment and really examine Jesus' parable this morning. Let's look at the story that he shared. This is a story that could have been stripped straight from the headlines of the Judean News Network, JNN. The road in Jesus' parable was a very treacherous road. The distance from Jerusalem to Jericho is about 17 miles, and the road descended sharply towards the Jordan River, just north of the Dead Sea. The road curved through rugged and rocky terrain where robbers and thieves could easily hide. It was considered especially dangerous and full of hazards. In Jesus' parable, a man is traveling down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he falls into the hands of bandits who are hiding in wait along this dangerous road. The thieves strip the man of all of his clothes, beat him up within an inch of his life, take all of his money and anything valuable that he has on him, and then leave him laying on the side of the road. Can you picture the scene that Christ is describing to this man and in turn to us this morning? Now let's look at our three characters from our parable this morning. Which one acted like the man's neighbor? Kids, if you're following along, we've got to put our detective hats on. We've got to be a gumshoe detective here. We've got to figure this out. Which guy acted most like the guy's neighbor? It's like the game of Clue. Who did it? Is it Colonel Mustard? We don't know. Let's find out. Let's look at verse 31. First up, we have the priest. Verse 31 says, A priest happened to be going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Let's talk about this priest. Priests served in the temple, and their highest duty was to offer sacrifices. So could it be that the priest didn't want to go near the man because he didn't want to run the risk of ritually defiling himself? or for having to offer a sacrifice to the Lord? Maybe. It's also possible that he had already finished carrying out his ritual duties. When priests and Levites were on the way to serve in the temple, they typically traveled in groups. But this man was walking alone. Scripture also states that he was going down the road. This could imply that he was heading away from Jerusalem. But maybe Luke is just stating that he is walking on the road. I don't know if he's trying to convey that the priest was walking downhill and thus away from the temple or not. Maybe the priest thought the man was dead, so he figured, why bother? Whatever the case, he definitely does not seem concerned with helping the man. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Not only is he not concerned about the man, but he also downright wants to avoid him because we see that he passed by on the other side of the road. The priest took one look at the wounded man, cut across the road, and kept walking along the street. So no help for our wounded man from the priest. Next up, we have a Levite. A Levite comes on the scene in verse 32. It says, in the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, 
passed by on the other side. Just like the priests, Levites helped in and around the temple. Mostly they assisted in the maintenance of the temple and helped serve with the order of worship. So just like our priest, maybe the Levite was worried that he would defile himself if he touched the man or got anything on him. However, just like with our priest, the Levite is traveling alone. Is he leaving the temple or heading towards the temple? We really don't know for sure. All we do know is that just like his buddy the priest, the Levite takes one look at the man in need of help and immediately passes by on the other side of the street. Both the priest and the Levite were physically able to help the man. They could have rushed over and made sure he was okay. They could have run and got help. They could have notified someone or done something, but they didn't. So kids, if you're following along, I don't think the priest or the Levite acted much like this wounded man's neighbor. Maybe it was Colonel Mustard after all. Whatever their reasoning was, whatever their excuse, at the end of the day, the priest and the Levite didn't care. They didn't help the man. They didn't assist the man. They didn't even call for someone to come over, help him, clean him up, and take care of him. What they did was avoid the man. They crossed the road, looked the other way, and ignored him. The scariest part of this story is that oftentimes, many of us do the same thing. When faced with the opportunity to help someone in need, we sometimes, metaphorically, turn a blind eye, cross the road, and keep on going. That being said, let's look at what the Samaritan did when he came on the scene. Verse 33, we see the Samaritan. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. The Samaritan, as we can all see, acted differently than the Levite and the priest did. Rather than cross the road and ignoring the man, the Samaritan had compassion on him. One translation I read said the Samaritan took pity on him. Then the Samaritan took what was most likely his own clothes to bandage the man's wounds. The Samaritan used his own olive oil and wine to soothe and heal the wounds. The Samaritan put the hurt man on top of his own horse and took him to an inn where he could rest and recover and paid for this room with his own money. So kids and adults, I don't know what you think, but I think Colonel Mustard is off the hook here. It sounds like from everyone in our story this morning, the Samaritan was the one who most acted like the man's neighbor. The good Samaritan gave of his time, his own possessions, and his money to help this man who was hurt, wounded, and helpless, to help a man that others ignored and even avoided. A priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan are walking down the road. It sounds like the beginning of a joke, but it's actually the pivotal point of Jesus' parable. After sharing this parable with the expert of the law, Jesus asks him, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? To which the scribe responds, the one who showed mercy to him. 
The man is so disgusted with the outcome of Jesus' parable that he can't even bring himself to say the words, the Samaritan. He is so frustrated with the result of the story, he can't bring himself to identify him by name. Instead, he says, the one who showed mercy to him. The title of today's pericope in my Bible reads, The Parable of the Good Samaritan. We call him the Good Samaritan because he was the only one who was good in today's story. He was the only man who chose to stop and help his neighbor. However, in one translation I read, when Jesus is telling the story in verse 33, it says, a despised Samaritan came along. How can someone who did such a good thing, a great thing really, be described as a despised person? Well, as many of us know, it's because the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They despised them. They didn't like them. The Jews thought that they were better than the Samaritans. Have you ever heard or seen a people group that despises another people group or hates another people group? It seems to happen a lot, actually. In today's parable, there's a shocking reversal of roles here. The Jewish expert would have thought of the Jewish victim as a good person and the Samaritan as an evil one. To a Jew, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Jesus could have told this story with a Samaritan victim and a Jewish helper, and the expert of the law would have had no problem with it. But the role reversal here drives the story home by shaking the listener loose from his preconceptions. Maybe the same thing will happen to you this morning. Maybe God is going to shake you loose from your preconceptions as well. When we read this parable, it would appear pretty obvious that the main point of Jesus' parable is that we are to love our neighbors. But who are our neighbors? Well, that was the question the religious expert asked Jesus. And that's a good question for us this morning, too. Who are our neighbors? In today's parable, we came across two categories of people. In today's story, there were neighbors and there were not neighbors. In fact, if we were to sit back and really examine our own lives, we'd probably find that we divide people in our lives into these two categories as well. Our neighbors are the ones we call our friends. They're our family members. Some of our family members. They're the people that we enjoy hanging out with. They're the ones we get along with. Oftentimes, our neighbors are the people who think like we do or dress like we do. We see our neighbors as those who have similar interests as we do. Our neighbors watch the same movies or enjoy the same music that we do. Oftentimes, they have signs in their front yards suggesting that others vote for the same political candidates that we want to vote for. Then we have our not-neighbors. You know the ones I'm talking about. It's the family members that we didn't list in that first category. It's our coworkers who give us a sense of relief when they call in sick or quit. It's the people that make our eyes roll. It's our brothers and sisters in Christ who, when we see them coming down the hallway here at church, we duck into the bathroom to hide. It's those friends who call on us unexpectedly or stop by the house, and suddenly we remember the non-existent ham that we need to take out of the oven or the long-overdue library book that must be returned right now. If we were truly honest and transparent about our lives this morning, we would quickly discover that we have those we consider our neighbors 
and those we consider are not neighbors. That's how the Pharisee in today's scripture felt as well. The expert of the law had a list in his head of who his neighbors were and who his not neighbors were. There were people he felt like he could love and those he had no desire to love. So who's our neighbor? If it helps, my closest neighbor is Crystal. Then Maddie, then my dog, then my cat, then everybody else. In all seriousness, though, Crystal is my closest neighbor. She's my wife. She's my spouse. If I don't love her, then it really doesn't matter whether or not I love her or care about anyone else. If I can't get that most important piece right, then forget about the rest. Who's our neighbor? Here's your answer. If you're taking notes, write this down. Based on God's word, I would argue that your neighbor is anyone who isn't you. Period. Our neighbor is anyone who isn't us. Our neighbors are not just the people who we like or the folks that we get along with. Our neighbors are not simply those who dress the same way we do or look like we do. Our neighbors are not the ones who vote the same way we do or have the same theology that we do. Our neighbors are each and everyone who's living in the world who isn't us. Our neighbors are everyone who isn't us, whether we like it or not. Who are our neighbors today? Who are your neighbors today? Let's think about this. If you live in the United States, then your neighbors are the ones living in Canada or Mexico. Our neighbors are the ones on the other side of the political aisle or on the other side of the courtroom. Oftentimes our neighbors are our friends, but sometimes they're the people that we despise or the people that are our enemies. The Samaritan was not expected to be the hero of Jesus' parable. The Jews and the Samaritans did not interact with one another. They despised each other. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans the very same way that sometimes people in Bountiful look down on those who live in Rose Park. Many of us know it's easier to love your friends than it is to love your enemies. But here Jesus is making it abundantly clear that we are to love our enemies too. Put yourself in the place of our characters today. Put yourself in the place of the people in today's parable. The priest, the Levite, the good Samaritan, even the wounded man. The wounded man was the religious leader's neighbor. On the flip side, the religious leader was the wounded man's neighbor, even if they didn't act like it. Our neighbors don't always do the right thing. Sometimes they're the ones who sin against us. Our neighbors are the ones who cut us off in traffic. Our neighbors are the ones who wrong us or talk poorly about us. God commands us to love those who do wrong against us. As difficult as that is to hear. We are to love others, even our adversaries. The Jews were called to love the Samaritans. The Israelites were called to love the Egyptians. Esau was called to love Jacob, and Abel was called to love Cain. As followers of Christ, we are commanded to love others. This includes those living on the other side of the street, the other side of the tracks, or the other side of the border. It sounds simple, but it's not always easy. And without God's help, sometimes it's downright impossible. 
So what's the point of all this? What's the main point of our parable this morning? Obviously, it's to love one another, right? I mean, that's what we see here. It's to love our neighbors. We've all read this parable before. As kids, many of us grew up hearing this parable in Sunday school. We all know this parable from reading this parable in Sunday school, that we're supposed to love our neighbors. At first glance, it's easy to think that loving your neighbors is the main point of today's parable. However, the reality is that is not the point of today's parable. The point of today's parable is not that we need to love our neighbors. It's so much more than that. In fact, if I were to tell you that Jesus' main point this morning in the parable of the Good Samaritan is to love your neighbor, I'd be just as guilty of being a heretic and preaching to you a moralistic message contrary to God's word as the false teachers across this country who tell us we just need to do better. We just need to be better. Those false teachers cheer us on from the sidelines with a fake gospel telling us that our good works have the power to save us. They cheer us on from the sidelines and they tell us, you can do it, you can do it, you can, you can. The only problem is we can't. Not without God. Don't get me wrong. We are commanded to love our neighbors. God's word tells us that we are to love our neighbors. We do see that in our text this morning. But that's not the main point of Jesus' parable. If that were the point, this parable would not be as potent as it truly is. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look back at where this whole parable began. Look back at the conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee. What prompted Jesus to share this parable? Let's look back at verse 25 together. Verse 25 says, An expert of the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The man wanted to know how he could live forever. What must I do to enter eternity, the man asked. Jesus' response, be perfect. There's just one problem. The man wasn't perfect. Nonetheless, in an effort to justify himself, the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? What must I, who must I love? To which Jesus told the man, you have to love everyone. The question is, did he? After concluding this parable, Jesus in verse 36 asked the Pharisee this essential question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who was it? The man's response? The one who showed mercy to him. Jesus then ends the conversation by telling the man, go and do the same thing. That's where our parable ends. But that's not where the story ended. His story doesn't end there. We don't know what happened to that man after he was done talking with Jesus. After the conversation ended, they parted ways, and they went separate directions. What do you think happened to that man? Do you think he really changed and went on to be just like the Good Samaritan? Did he crush it and just rock his faithfulness to love God and love others all of the time, every time, for the rest of his life? Maybe. I doubt it. 
Think about it. How many times have we heard this story? How many times have we read the story of the Good Samaritan? We've all grown up hearing this story. The story existed in storybook Bibles long before the one that I just read to the kids. Have any of us crushed it? Have any of us nailed these two commandments our entire lives? Anyone? Here's a quick test. Let's figure this out. If you're sitting here today and you are married, and there has been one single moment where you didn't, haven't died to your own desires and loved your spouse with everything that is in you, you've sinned. For our kids in the room, kids, if you've ever had a moment where you've considered seriously knocking out your younger or even your older siblings, even after your mom told you, quit biting, then it's came over. You lose. If there has been one single millisecond where any of us haven't loved our neighbors, who we already determined is everyone, then that's it. We all done messed up. If we can't follow Jesus' commands perfectly, what makes us think that the man in today's parable was able to? Here's the deal. You are not the Samaritan. None of us are the Samaritan. None of us can be perfect. We simply cannot justify ourselves, and we cannot earn our salvation. If we were going to be anybody in today's parable, we'd be the religious leaders. That's who we are. We are all guilty of caring about ourselves more than others. Each one of us is guilty of putting our own selfish desires ahead of those of our neighbors. At the end of the day, this parable has a lot more to do with us and the condition of our hearts than it does who our neighbors are. As hard as it is to process, oftentimes our neighbors are the ones who have sinned against us or wronged us. How do you turn around and love them? The truth is, without God, you can't. This is the reality of our situation. Here's the cold, hard truth. It is impossible for us to love others without the love of Christ dwelling inside of us. Left to our own sinful, selfish desires, the only person we care about is ourselves. Without Christ, when others sin against us, we don't want to turn the other cheek. No, we want the opposite. We want to destroy our neighbors and crush our enemies. Deep down, left to my own devices, apart from God, I don't care what others want. I only care about what I want. What's best for Joe? What's in it for me? If we truly look back at our lives, we are just as guilty of sinning against our neighbors as our neighbors are of sinning against us. Even worse, in addition to sinning against each other, every one of us has sinned against a holy and righteous God. You might be able to backtrack from sinning against your wife, but how do you escape the sins that you've committed against God? By just doing better? By our good deeds? Come on. The point that Jesus is making through this parable is that the only way for us to get to heaven is for us to be perfect. The hard reality of our situation is that none of us are perfect or ever will be. How can we be justified? 
How can we earn our salvation? It's impossible. No matter how old you are or where you are in life, you've already failed. Each one of us has already broken these two powerful commandments. Love God and love others. Even if we were able to reset the game of life right now, half of us wouldn't even make it out these doors without a sinful thought or unrighteous behavior. Not to mention making it through the end of the day, in which case it's game over, all over again. Thankfully, there's hope. Because where we are imperfect, Christ is perfect. Through this parable, Christ is calling on us to be reconciled, not just to our neighbors, but to God. Maybe you're sitting here today and you feel like you're an enemy of God's. Or even worse, that he's an enemy of yours. Whatever the case, if that's you this morning, be reconciled to God. If you hear Jesus calling you this morning to be reconciled, come talk to me. Let's talk about the beautiful picture outlined in Romans 5 that shows us that even while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. Where we failed to keep the commandments, Jesus has been perfected in them. Jesus lived the perfect, sinless life that none of us are possible of coming even close to living. We don't have to win the game of life on our own because Christ has already defeated sin, hell, death, and the grave for us. Praise God that we don't have to try to earn our salvation because none of us can. In the end, we would all come up short. The gospel isn't be better. The gospel is he is perfect. The point of Jesus' parable is that no one, not one of us, is capable of earning our salvation and gaining eternal life on our own. Not one of us is able to love his neighbor every time, all the time. So what do we do with all this? What's the application for us today? Well, for one, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. That's in here. But there's so much more here than that. The point of today's parable is that without a love and devotion to God, none of us are capable of loving our neighbors. Without the redeeming, transforming work of God actively taking place inside of you, it's impossible to even come close to fulfilling these commandments. If you set out to love your neighbor as a means to morally earn your salvation and gain access to God's kingdom, you're not going to make it very far. However, if God is truly living inside of us and transforming us, we should desire to serve others. If you love God and you want to honor him, then out of the abundance of a love for the Father, you will find yourself wanting to help others and love others the way that Christ loves us. The amazing thing about the gospel, the incredible thing about today's parable is the wonderful blessing that comes from understanding that there is nothing that we could possibly do to earn our salvation. We are not justified by our works. We are justified by our faith. Don't be like the religious leaders in today's parable. 
Don't risk your salvation by putting your faith and your hope into your own works in order to justify yourself and earn your own righteousness. If you put your faith in your good deeds, there's only one way that's going to end. For the Christian, you can rest assured that your salvation is in Christ, in Christ alone. We hear all the time that life is about risks. Here's what Charles Spurgeon once said about risks. He said, I risk my soul's eternal fate upon the truth of the gospel, and I know that there is no risk in it. If you place your soul's eternal fate in your works, you're risking everything. And in the end, you're going to lose. However, if you put the eternal fate of your soul in the gospel of Jesus Christ, there's no risk at all. Only assurance. Blessed assurance. And that, brothers and sisters, is the powerfully potent promise of the gospel. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much. Lord, that I don't have to try to earn my salvation, but that our salvation comes through you and you alone. Lord, where we mess up, where we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves, where we fail to love you first and foremost in our lives. Lord, you have been perfected where we are imperfect. Lord, I pray that this parable would serve as a great reminder to all of us of the importance of following you and putting our faith in you, not in the things of this world, which are momentary and go away. Lord, I pray that the next time we see this parable, we'd remember that we can't do good on our own. Any good in us, anything that we do that is righteous is through you, through the redeeming, transforming work of your gospel that's happening each inside each of us. Lord, I thank you for the work that you're doing, the redemptive work you did on the cross so that we might live forever. Above all, Lord, I thank you for the assurance, blessed assurance that comes from knowing that you hold our future in your hands and there's nothing that we can do to lose it. We give you all the honor, all the glory, all the praise, not just today, Lord, but forever and ever. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit redeeminglifeutah.org.